And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Good to be here, Dan. And on the phone from far away in Tennessee is the Reverend Kevin Sherritt. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Well, gentlemen, it's good to have you here today. I was going to say in the studio, but Kevin, you're far away. We have an interesting discussion today. You know, we started thinking about what are we going to talk about on this edition of A Plain Answer. Uh, We have Thanksgiving coming up. We have so much to be thankful for. And Kevin, you had a great suggestion. It's really honing in on the ultimate point of what we need to be thankful for. And uh, yet you used a big word in the note to me. You mentioned something called penal substitution. And uh, that is what we want to talk about today. To get us started, uh, Kevin, could you help us understand uh, in Christian theology, what does that phrase really mean? Well, penal substitution um, means that in Jesus' death on the cross, he substitutes for us. We get this uh, most basically at the most primitive and fundamental and, and glorious level of the gospel when we say Jesus died for our sins. So some, some form of substitution is undeniable. The, the penal means, it's, from, it's a legal term, it means he bore punishment in our place. Uh, now this would seem obvious since he died. Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. and death in its fullness, you know, bodily death and separation from God is the punishment for sins. Uh, in the day you eat of it, you will die. The wages of sin is death. Death is the due payment for sins, and Jesus dies for our sins. So um, substitution is unavoidable, and the penal dimension is unavoidable. The adjective penal anchors the substitution in the world of God's holy moral law, right? The reality of guilt, mm-hmm. judicial condemnation, and, and then justice. Um, and uh, that's essentially what penal substitution mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. You'd think it'd be uncontroversial, but it's, it's not actually uncontroversial. Is that right? As we uh, consider this today... Obviously, this just naturally flows right from the Scriptures. Let's jump right to that, and that is, um, uh, as we read the Bible, what are some passages that would teach us um, this very notion and understanding of penal substitution? You, you can see them already in the Old Testament, in the prophecies that would come in Isaiah 53, and where it talks about the substitution there. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone mm-hmm. to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Of course, uh, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Uh, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God is really laying on Jesus. He's really executing, now here's an important phrase, I think, he's executing his wrath upon his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of on me. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, when we talk about God, um, in our culture today, people always want to talk about the loving aspect of God, and there is a wonderful loving aspect of God. But aren't they kind of jumping the gun in terms of talking about his love before they really understand what we have to be so thankful about? It's really, this um, cosmic shotgun is really aimed right at my heart. 
And uh, if it weren't for Jesus, I would literally be blown away eternally and eternally tormented because of the wrath of God. Help mm-hmm. us understand that a little bit. Yeah, this this is a place where the discussion can get confusing. And uh, it's true that God is love, and that love is basic to his character. Yeah. Uh, but he is also holy love, and that love reacts in a personal, perfect, and good way to sin in its creation. And that reaction of that holy love that is God, that personal reaction, is, is wrath. What mm-hmm. we have to avoid here is the notion. You can articulate this doctrine of penal substitution in such a way that it sounds like you've got a capricious and angry God who Jesus is just placating him. Mm-hmm. But, but um, the two ideas, the love of God and the fact that Jesus placates the wrath of God, are, are brought together in numerous places. First John 4.10 says, uh, This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and set forth his Son as the propitiation, you know, the, the atoning sacrifice which placates the wrath of God for our sins. So it is the love of God which both results in just wrath in the face of evil and sin, and that same love which sets forth the Son as an atoning sacrifice to bear that wrath. Mm -hmm. And the Son does this willingly and freely, and in fact sees His and the Father's glory in the cross. And so once you say that, uh, there can be absolutely no pitting uh, of the love of God and the wrath of God against one another. Mm-hmm. It, it is God who provides the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice in His Son, and it is God in the person of His Son, God Himself, who is the sacrifice, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll make one, mm-hmm. one other quick point here down this. is If you remove this notion of God's wrath and His vengeance from, from the picture, the biblical picture, you, in fact, cut out... Um, one of the great bases for loving our neighbor and loving our enemy that's in the world. In Romans 12, Paul, basically citing Jesus' teaching, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, says that we should, you know, not take our own vengeance. We should uh, never execute our own wrath, if you will. We should leave that to God. Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We, then, Paul says, we should um, do good to our enemy, be kind to our enemy. If we remove the wrath of God from the world, we'll take up the wrath ourselves. Paul says, no, no, you, have, you don't need to worry about wrath. God will see to vengeance. You show kindness to your enemy. So at that particular point, it is precisely the reality of the vengeance of God that grounds our ability to not take vengeance and to love our enemies. Mm -hmm. Let me just read that uh, verse in uh, Romans 12, verse 19. Uh, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's that's a good reference. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, I'm looking at the clock here. I see we need to uh, take a short break. Today on A Plain Answer, we're talking about penal substitutionary atonement. Very interesting discussion. Please stay with us. There's lots more to come, particularly related to Thanksgiving. And as we approach this season, uh, what we can truly be thankful for in Jesus Christ. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Today we're discussing penal substitutionary atonement. And uh, that's a large phrase, but uh, before the break, Kevin, you mentioned um, something concerning the wrath of God. Uh, we looked at Romans twelve nineteen together. And um, on this side of the break, Mark, you had a comment when our mics were closed uh, concerning God's wrath. And uh, could you take it from there now? Yes, I, I was just saying if, if we diminish God's wrath, then we also diminish God's love. Because if there is no real wrath of God or our sin isn't all that bad, uh, then uh, for God to uh, accept us really is not such a big thing. Mm-hmm. you know. And it's sad to say, and I, I think uh, the, the problem we have with people who have problems with penal uh, substitution with this whole area, is I think we do have a lot of humanism which has come into our society, which really looks at human beings as not being that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, if you uh, remove this question of wrath, which is often the offensive part to even Christian people, that Mm -hmm. Jesus is, if you will, punished by the Father, um, and that he bears the Father's wrath, well, you have to ask the question then, well, then what exactly is the cross then? Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you remove the punishment due That's to point. and the wrath of yes. God from the atonement, then, in fact, you do have a just God who's allowing an innocent man to be punished for no good juridical reason. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, what is the purpose of that sacrifice? What was the purpose of, of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament? Of course, right. they were just, you know, types and signs of, of that ultimate sacrifice that would come there. But that whole Old Testament sacrificial system was to point out how offensive our sins are towards mm-hmm. our our infinitely holy God. Now, it seems to me that um, as the Holy Spirit works on your heart, works on my heart, 
and uh, woos us to himself. Um, part of the equation has to be a sense of our own sins, that we have um, violated the law of God, we've offended a holy God, and that really, uh, until we um, rest our case in him, until we believe on Jesus, until he takes our sins and, and deals with them, um, we have a lot to fear. Um, and in some ways, we should be quaking and fearing, because it's not just a word, but it, it gets carried out, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking about mm. here what the Bible talks about, uh, literally, it uses the words everlasting destruction mm. for those who do not know Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, John 3.16 talks about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. But he also goes on to say, uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Mm-hmm. That's condemnation mm-hmm. before God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting in that in that John 3 passage where you have condemnation on an unbeliever. I, down at the end of the chapter, I think it's verse 36 or thereabouts, right? It's, it says... He who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God, God. remains on him. That's it. That's it, yeah. And that's an important concept, that the wrath of God. And it's it's amazing. We live in a society, if you look at the history, at church history, at the time of Luther, there was no question in people's mind about the wrath of God. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that scared Luther to death, in fact. It mm. just... Uh, well, it scared him into the monastery, at least. <laughs> <laughs> then, another did, way of, uh, yeah. of filling this out is to think of the fact that all Christians, uh, within the bounds of orthodoxy, affirm a coming eschatological, yes. uh, eternal wrath that when, when Jesus returns again to judge the world. Yes. And, and that wrath, um, we are said in, say, First Thessalonians 1, to be delivered from right. uh, by the death of Jesus. First Thessalonians 5 says, we're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation, you know, because Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the logical implication of believing in a final judgment which entails wrath, and which, at which Christians will be vindicated, is that Jesus bore the wrath due to them mm-hmm. at the cross. Right. Yeah. That's it. I think when we um, consider the wrath of God and we start taking our sin more seriously, um, that's that's something good in our life. When we start to realize that er- every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, yeah, as the Catechism says, both in this life and and that which is to come, uh, th- this makes it an extremely serious matter. Yeah. And that's the contrast. And now we can finally start to appreciate the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's it. I, I, it's that, that great appreciation because we were having a discussion, I think, a few nights ago, I think, January, that there and talking about sanctification, how when someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a transformation in their lives. And, and they die to sin and live unto Christ. And so their life actually, in many ways, they're living their lives better. And yet we noted how at the same time, they tend to be more cognizant of their sinfulness and seem to it seems like we we become bigger sinners after we become saved not because we sin more but because we're more cognizant of our sin but at the same time being more cognizant of our sin we're 
also more cognizant of how much Christ did for us mm-hmm. in taking away all that sin. Yes. And that, that leads to a greater thankfulness and thanksgiving. Amen. Now, this word of penal, penal substitution, can we talk a little bit more about uh, this um, kind of sounds like forensic side of things. This, this, it's almost like legal language. Mm-hmm. You might, you might say, why, why on earth would we use legal language in Christianity? Can you help us uh, appreciate that just a little bit more? I, I'm sure you already have, but uh, help, no. help us over the hump just a bit more. This, this is driven, uh, in my mind, by very uh, primitive, you know, structurally basic stuff in the Bible. If you go to mm-hmm. um, Genesis 2 and 3, where you get to the fall, there is legal language there. Um, the ground is cursed. Even the serpent is cursed. Adam mm-hmm. is given a, a command which he violates, and then a sanction of death is placed on him, right? Yes. And then there's, there's an expulsion from the garden, and then there's a stationing of a fiery angel who will have to be satisfied, mm-hmm. appeased, if you're ever going to get back into that garden, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what's important to see is that when Paul takes up Christ as the second Adam, he, he does so in expressly what we would call forensic or legal yeah. language, right? He, he, it's juridical categories. Adam's disobedience or trespass, Paul says. Notice, Adam trespassed, which meant... He wasn't just tempted. He violated an express command of God. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And Paul calls that a trespass. And that trespass, Paul says, leads to condemnation, another legal term, which leads to death. Notice there's a middle factor between sin and death. The wages of sin is death, but what connects them is that when Adam sins, God condemns him and his offspring, and that leads to death. Death is fundamentally rooted in trespass mm-hmm. and condemnation, which are legal categories. And then Paul goes on in Romans 5 to see Christ's whole obedience. His obedience answers to Adam's trespass. Mm-hmm. His justification answers to condemnation. And the life he gives us answers to death. So, I mean, when we use these kinds of forensic categories, we're doing something that is... Um, at the root of biblical theology. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you see it in the theology, as you say, Kevin, in, in Genesis, but then to make sure that uh, we understand it in that way, then at Mount Sinai, God gives us the law right there, the mm-hmm. legal law, so that it's written, and as he points out in Romans 2, you know, even if even those who didn't have that legal law, there was a law within them. And mm-hmm. so that that they knew what was right and what was wrong. And, and um, right. so you have these, these legal categories mm-hmm. uh, that are, as you say, endemic throughout Scripture. You know, I'm thinking here about the law of God. And uh, sometimes people um, um, misuse the law. And we often will point them or remind them that, to the book of Galatians, and yet as we get into the book of Galatians, there's an interesting quotation in Galatians 3.10. It says, Cursed is every one that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And then, of course, he goes on with his various points. But here's a structure that God sets up, and when we are against his holy laws, that makes us guilty. And even in the Gospels, you think, oh, the Gospels all good news. Well, there's some bad news in there, too, 
if you're not a child of God. Um, Matthew twenty five forty one. Then shall he say also unto them on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into mm-hmm. everlasting fire. This isn't just a short fire. Um, that's another popular thing mm-hmm. in our culture nowadays to to poo-poo. Can I say that over the air? Poo-poo hell and say, oh, it doesn't Damn. exist. It's just annihilation. No! <laughs> I'm sorry. The Bible says it's everlasting mm-hmm. fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Yeah, and yeah if it, you mitigate penal substitution, you'll end up mitigating the doctrine of hell. And, and, it does. Uh, yes, yeah. you really do. It does. And, and what that does, I think, in all these things is is it elevates human beings. You know, people say a God of love could not do that to human <laughs> beings. Why are we that important? Yes. We're, we are important. There's no sure. doubt about it. But it's an importance God gave us by giving us the amount right. of day, his image. But standing before him, I cannot help but think of, of Job when, hmm. you know, Job is trying to tell how good he is and, and why uh, the suffering that, that he has, why God, why God. And when God reveals himself to Job, he basically is saying, look who I am. Yeah. Do you really have a right to ask that question? Yes. And and Job immediately admits, you know, I don't. I don't have a right to ask that question. You are so far above, you know, you owe me absolutely nothing. Yeah. And yet, what did God do? Then he, of course, restored everything. You know, Job. somebody might ask today, and I see we're close to the end of the show already, uh, what what does God require of me that I might escape his his wrath and curse? You guys have been talking about this, and uh, now I'm starting to see it that that God hates my sin, and mm-hmm. and I want to escape the wrath. I want to I want to have relationship, not not cursing. What do I need to do, and Kevin? We need to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and yeah. place your faith in God, and to acknowledge that God in His Son has borne your sins. And um, and you trust that mm-hmm. for your standing, your your acquittal before the throne of God. And if you do that um, from the heart and you confess it with your mouth, you shall be saved. Yeah, it's that simple. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. And then you realize, you know, with that, that it's nothing of you. You haven't done anything. You can't put God in a position where you obligate him. He has given you that grace and mercy out of what Jesus did. I'm also reminded that, uh, and you guys have already expressed this, that our faith in Jesus Christ really is a saving grace. And and we receive, we rest upon Jesus alone for our salvation. It's not some set of uh, works that we do. Of course we need to repent. Of course that as a proselyte to the faith, you need to be baptized. And that's a good work. But it's God that's helping you do that. <laughs> it's he who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Um, we're out of time already. How about uh, just some closing remarks, uh, Mark and then Kevin? But one of the things that, you know, when we accept what Jesus Christ did in taking away the penalty of our sin, the Bible tells us that he makes us his child and gives <laughs> us so much that even in the worst circumstances, Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good to those who love him, who yes. are called according to his purpose. And and even in the worst times, we could say like Paul in Romans eight eighteen, 
I consider that the present suffering is not to be compared with the glory that's to come. Mm. God not only saves us, you know, uh, from our sin, but he saves us eternally, and it's beyond our comprehension. Amen to that. Dan, I would say that um, when we talk about the centrality of this um, you know, judicial substitution of the cross, we need to be clear that we recognize that there are other biblical metaphors for what happens at the cross. Right there, Jesus does other things. He mm-hmm. liberates us from Satan's power. Right, um, he provides redemption from the bondage we're in. He he pays a ransom price. He provides a moral example of innocent and patient suffering. All of these things are facets of the of the multifaceted diamond that is the atonement. But. But the penal substitution aspect is central and cannot be excised without uh, really harming the faith. And, and when we see it, and I think this is particularly relevant this time of year, when we see it, it evokes deep gratitude and thanksgiving and praise to God who in his love set forth his son to bear our wrath. Amen to that. Yes. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. We are out of time for this edition of A Plain Answer. Today in the studio with me has been the Reverend Mark Diedrich on the phone, the Reverend Kevin Sherritt. Uh, This entire episode is up on our website. Please visit us. That address is RedeemerBroadcasting.org or email us with any question that you may have at the following address, ministry at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And a reminder to please join us again next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. I come just as-